My name's Colby, and I, I serve as one of the pastors here. Um, we've kind of taken a hike through our trek through the Gospel of Mark, and we've done that to um, just kind of tackle some in-house things uh, with some standalone sermons, and particularly address uh, our focus on Missions Month in November. And so I hope that has been a reorienting time for you um, as we've gathered in the church to keep our eyes on the harvest. Um, but our regular habit here is to go uh, word by word, verse by verse, straight through books of the Bible. And we believe that that allows us to get the full counsel of God. That as important as it is for you maybe to think that I should do 17 sermons about how to fix your kids or fix your marriage, um, I find that God has put exactly what He wants us to tackle in his word at exactly the same frequency that we need to hear it. And so if we'll just be faithful to go through the whole scripture, I think we'll get a vision of God that will impact our marriages and impact family and missions and our community and our holiness. And so uh, we're going to jump back into the gospel of Mark and begin to trek through that. Uh, and so we'll be in uh, Mark chapter 9 today. Um, as a lead-in, um, I know there's people in here uh, that are probably so wealthy and so bougie that when they go to Sam's Club, they, they don't get the samples. Uh, but I'm not one of them, all right? And so if I go by there and you got bacon wrapped on something, I'm in, all right? Maybe two or three times. I'll send my kids as ambassadors because there's seven of us and we will empty your display. I like a sample. I like to give it a try and kind of see how it goes. And uh, I'm not really a connoisseur of maybe wine or other great things that people are. But when it comes to sampling, you know what I mean? I kind of know what I'm talking about. And there's no better uh, sampling that uh, my wife and I do than chips and salsa. If I come to your restaurant, the chips and salsa, tell me if I'm wrong here, set the tone. Right? Like if you come in and... And there's so many different criteria here. Do you get the individual bowl or are we all going for like the Catholic gauntlet of salsa? Do they have the thick chips or the thin chips? Are they definitely out of a bag or did they home make the chips? And if the, tell me this, if the chips and salsa is totally garbage, does it make you look forward to the meal? No. But if that chips and salsa is on point... You might dip your real meal with the chip. You might pour the salsa. And by the way, I don't even want to get into the fact that Colorado has no concept of queso. All right? But if you get into that chips and salsa, and if the chips and salsa is really good, it just becomes the meal, and you get a to-go box for everything else that comes later. Right? The sample or the appetizer should kind of get us hyped about the full course meal. Right? And in the same way, when we get into the text today, what we're going to have is God giving us a sampling of the glory of Jesus. It's an appetizer. It's meant um, to wet our palate and to prepare us for the full course meal of His glory one day. And so um, I want to pray and then we're just going to dive into it and see if we can't uh, just get a fragment of a glimpse of what the disciples got when they went up to the mountain of transfiguration. So we, would you join me in prayer? Um, dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. 
We praise you because you have given us your infallible and perfect word. None of us here are worthy to handle even one written copy of this scripture. I am not worthy to preach it and none here are worthy to hear it. And so God, it is by grace today that we handle your word, that we hear your word, and that we have opportunity to respond to your word. God, make us mindful of what's taking place here this morning. Make us responsive to your voice. God, don't let us get a taste of your glory and not buy in. And so, um, Holy Spirit, would you come and overshadow and enable me to preach in ways that I wouldn't be able to otherwise? Would you overshadow my brothers and sisters and my friends here so they'd be able to understand in ways they couldn't understand otherwise? And so, God, come have center stage. Make the cross clear. God, make us um, captivated by the glory of Jesus all over again. Do that through your word and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen. If you've got a Bible, open to Mark chapter 9. Uh, just a little bit of a jog. The book of Mark opens with, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the thesis statement. That's the tweet. That's the lucid brevity statement. That is going to set the tone for the whole book. Mark 1, verse 1. And everything that Mark has begun to do up until this point has been to reinforce that thesis statement. That is, when you see Jesus fulfilling the word of God and doing something, he is doing it as a part of the gospel, as the son of God. And so, when he teaches, we see his glory as the son of God. When he heals someone in fulfillment of passages in Isaiah, like the deaf or the mute, and we see him heal someone like that, we see that he is doing so, so that you would understand who he is. The miracles are not meant to terminate on themselves. They are signposts that usher us to understand and to get a taste of his glory. When he teaches about the Sabbath, it's not about the Sabbath. It's about that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, and so we built all this momentum up until um, the end of chapter 8. And we said chapter 8 is the mountaintop of, of the whole gospel of Mark. It's exactly the centerpiece of, of Mark's exposition of who Jesus is. And what is at that centerpiece? The great confession. Who do you say that I am? This is the question that all of us have to answer and that eternity hangs on. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gets, amongst all the other things that he gets wrong, right, he nails this one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? He gets the great confession. Right? And now we end that mountaintop, and now we're going downhill towards that cross. Because him being the Son of God and his glory is not separate from the cross. It is intertwined. It is one and the same as the cross. The glory of Jesus is most readily known and experienced in the cross. And that's why when we come to church and when we invite people to preach, we say, put the cross at the center. doesn't matter. Old Testament, New Testament, the gospel, cover to cover, the cross is at the center. Not just of the book of Mark, but every sermon and the life of every Christian. So he comes out of this, you are the Christ thing, the Son of God thing, 
this glory thing into a discussion in 34 through 38 of Mark chapter 8 of what does that mean? And he called the crowd to him and the disciples. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he's got to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's a profit loss question. For 37, I anchored here. For what can a man give in return for his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? And, and this is kind of the question we ended when we finished uh, the study of Mark before we took a break. Was what would you sell out for? Like, what would you sell out for? What would you give in exchange for your soul? For many of us, it didn't take the whole world. We sold out for far less. Much lower sins than the whole world. And many of us, when we sold out, we discovered that we lost some essential part of ourselves in the process. That as we chase sin more and more, we became less and less. And that's what he's talking about. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? And this is why many of us have come to a place in our sinfulness where we can't look ourselves in the mirror. Like we've, we've come to become, it's really hard for other people to live with us, but we can't live with ourselves. So what would a man give for his soul? It, and this is the, maybe the argument here. Is that as we've lost a part of ourselves, Jesus comes in the cross to make us fully restored. That, that Jesus comes to make us the best version of us. That he intended for us to become when He knit us together in our mother's womb. And you are not getting there apart from Jesus. You can do all the self-discovery you want, but until you do a God-discovery, and you know your Creator, you will not know who you truly are as the creation. Do you hear me? And so this is a massive challenge that ends chapter 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Why? Because without Jesus and His Word, you have no glory. You have only shame. Who be ashamed of Him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in the glory. So that's, that's how we're going to end 8. We're talking about glory of His Father with the holy angels. That's how chapter 8 ends. Something glorious is coming in Jesus. Right? And we could say... Like, judgment day's coming, but there's no, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like, it's last things. It ends with eschatology. It ends with second coming kind of stuff. Last things, scoreboard kind of things at the end, right? And so that's how, the, that's how chapter 8 ends. A lot of people include verse 1 of chapter 9 with 8 because, really, there's no segment between what he just said and what's going to lead in to chapter 9, and so, uh, let's look there, and I, I'll, I'll show you why. 
verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, and. There's a conjunction here that is linking this statement to what he just said. And in verse 2, there's another and that is a conjunction linking what is said in verse 1 and with the end of chapter 8. And if you know, you're like me and you learn grammar from a television show, you should ask the question, conjunction, junction, what's your function? That show's so good. Kids will never know today. That's right. And he said to them, truly, it's truth what I'm about to say. 100%, it's, it's 100% happening. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here. Not all. Remember, the previous statement was when he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and he gave the same call that to come follow me, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. And that invitation was to the crowd and the disciples. There's no two pathways to God. There is one pathway. And so amongst that crowd and the disciples, he says, some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Whatever that means. All right? Then, verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. These are not disconnected realities. There's connective tissue in the text between what Jesus has just said and what Jesus is doing in the transfiguration. Does that make sense? There's connection between the two. You're... Some of you are not going to die that are standing here. He looks at the disciples, are not going to taste death until you taste the kingdom. Coming, a sampling, an appetizer of what the gloriousness of the kingdom, what the power is going to look like. Now, people have argued about what this verse means. So let me say this. I like to do simple, straightforward exegesis of the text. At minimum, at minimum, he's talking about the transfiguration. Would you agree with that? Now, we could go on and say, maybe he's talking about Acts 1-8 and the Holy Spirit and tongues of fire, all that charismatic stuff, the Baptist skip, all that charismatic stuff's going to, okay, so maybe he's talking about that too, he's built, okay, fine, we can, we can discuss that, but at minimum, he has to be talking about what Peter, James, and John are about to behold. They're going to get a sampling here. It says, some of you are not going to taste this. That minimalist has got to be this. This is connected. Now, look at, make a couple notes. The three people that he allows to come up are Peter, James, and John. This is also, if you've been with this throughout this series, is exactly the same inner three circle that were present at the resurrecting of Jairus' daughter. Do you remember that? And, and Jesus does this unapologetically. It's not like he just left Judas at the bottom of the mountain. Right? He takes his inner circle up to the top and is intimate with them and shows them something that he doesn't show the rest of the disciples or even the crowd. So here's a concept. I've taught this before, but I want to revisit it. Is that Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer people. Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer people. 
we know in Scripture that he has a circle of disciples that's like 120 disciples who are even out of the great crowds of thousands that followed him. And I would imagine that that 120 knows him on an intimate level that the crowd didn't. Then we see also in Luke's gospel that there's a crowd even amongst them that's 70 disciples. Then we could go down and say amongst those 70, most famously, we know of the 12 disciples, right? Amongst the 12 disciples, you even got one shady one, all right? So maybe we could go down to the 11. And amongst the 11, you got the three, Peter, James, and John. Now tell me, how many disciples were at the cross? Just John. Right? Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer people. Here's the the reason I think that is unbelievably healthy. It's because in the age of social media, you can have 2,000 Facebook friends that you think you're actually friends with. That you can have notifications on your phone to where you're constantly trying to keep up with people that let me just tell you, you can't keep up with them. You can't answer every email. Are you, we, we have more lanes to connect to people on a more shallow level than any other time in human history. And Jesus unapologetically goes super deep with three. He goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. So I'd maybe ask you like this. It's like, do you think that you can actually answer every text message? Right? Every phone call? Are you still, do you think you can maintain every relationship from high school? How many of those relationships from college? Because I think that I'm so tempted to dilute myself to these thousands of people that the people in this room, many of them I care a ton about, it's hard to be present with because I'm somewhere else trying to keep up with other people I, I, I just don't do life with anymore. Do you feel that pressure? Jesus goes deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer people. So if I maybe put it to you like this, who's your 120? Who's your 70? Who's your 12? Who's your 3? Men, this is a time for brownie points. Who's your 1? Just nudge her. Be like, girl, you're my one. Right? Maybe, maybe here's my heart. As a pastor, I want to set you free from the expectation that you have to keep up with a thousand people. And instead, hopefully you could be rescued to go just... Because I do want you to have super deep community in your house church or in the people you break bread with. I want, the thing is, I want to rescue from the pressure to keep up with a thousand people... So that maybe there's 12 that you just, you're just all in with. You hear me? Jesus does this. And I think that we would do well to imitate him. All right, too much there. He led them up to the mountain, it says. Luke's gospel account of this same transfiguration adds the detail that he led them up there to pray. To unveil his glory. Oh God, like... Lead me, Father, deeper in and further up that I might see your glory. Teach me to pray, Lord. It says that he led them up into a high place to pray. Now, tradition says this might be Mount Tabor in the Jezreel Valley. Um, I argue it's Mount Hermon. We have nothing from the text that identifies uh, where that mountain is. But if you take a tour of Israel, they're going to tell you definitively with no idea knowing. Right? But they take them up to the mountain and there God unveils himself. And it says that he was transfigured, right? 
the word in Greek has a combination of two words. Metamorph. Right? So he changes states. He's in a, a status where he makes himself a temporary exhibition of what is to come when the book of Revelation is fully unveiled. Um, he goes like... Uh, he goes like Power Ranger, all right? And he, he transfigures from uh, meek and lowly into like Optimus Prime. All right? That was for the kids, all right? Like, but some of you adults should have got that one. So he goes like Optimus Prime level into who he really is. So here's what's glorious about this passage. Listen to them try to describe it. Verse 3, And his clothes became radiant, Intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Mark's a wordsmith, I guess. Um, it, in Luke's gospel, um, when he gives this account, he describes it as lightning. So I guess the, like the disciples see him like lightning coming down, so he gets ACDC thunderstruck. Matthew's gospel is going to say it's like staring at the sun. That when they look, it's like the sun in noonday... Um, and he is radiant, and, and the sunlight is blasting them. So if you've ever, like, come out in Colorado, it feels like we're just closer to the sun, right? Because we are. And you look at the sun when it's setting and you're driving into it. You just feel like you've got to put sunglasses on or pull the shade down because it's so brilliant. It just kind of like, ah, it's like too much, right? I need something to filter it. Like, that's Matthew's description of this. Mark here is going to use radiant, intense white, like no one could bleach them. This is that there's nothing in the clothing that is naturally making him this way. So he's not wearing some sort of like Michael Jackson glowy vest or something. But it's like he himself is the source of the light. And if you've played with the Old Testament, you would know that in Psalm 104, verse 2, God is the one who wraps himself in light. Like it's his garment. Like God, he's clothed in light. This is a statement about that Jesus is the God who is the light. Because God alone is the one who's able to wrap himself in light. So Jesus... I don't know what's happening on this mountain. Like Jesus is hitting them like a solar flare. And, and this explains where John says, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God. We beheld his glory. What, I think John is describing everything about Jesus, but certainly including this. We beheld his glory, and it was like standing in front of somebody that went like nuclear. Jesus is like coming up on somebody who's got their brights on, and you just went to the eye doctor and got those droplets, you know what I'm saying? And you got the, the glasses, I don't know, the Stevie Ray things on. And I don't know... This is kind of a pet peeve. I think bright lights are brighter now than they used to be when I was a kid. But I don't know. Somebody is like juicing up their brights, all right? If I'm a deer, I'm getting hit, all right? Um, driving. So here's the thing. C come on, church brats. Stay with me. 
where else in Scripture does this sound like something we know? Where else does this, does this set off some things for you? So in the Old Testament, Moses is about to join this party, so that should be like a, that should be like a, a red flag right there. Moses is about to lead God's people through the wilderness. And they're at Mount Sinai receiving God's word in Exodus chapter 33 and uh, chapter 34. And I don't know if you've ever been on a team or served in ministry or anything. Moses is about to have a few million of God's people to lead through a desert. I don't know if you've ever tried to lead a church before, but that will make you question a whole lot of stuff. Moses, to say the least, is a bit reluctant about leading the kind of stiff-necked people that we are. So he goes to God and begins to debate with God. He's like, God, I don't know about all this. But he asks this question. He demands this thing of God. He said, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And think about all the things he could ask for. I'm going to need water. I'm going to need food. God, maybe a train would be good to get these people from A to B. Like Moses could have asked Solomon for wisdom. He comes and he says, God, if I'm going to do this thing, I need to see your glory. Right? Show me your glory. Because if I know you're glorious and powerful and good, it doesn't matter what challenge faces us. I know you're bigger than it. And he he demands to see. He said, God, let me see your face. God tells him, he's like, ain't ain't no sinner going to see my face and live to tell the tale. You'll see behind parts. Now, this isn't God, Moon, and Moses. This is a figurative language of where I just was. I'm going to put you in the cleft of rock, cover you with my hand. I'm going to pass by, and you'll see where I just was. My hind parts. You'll see the backside of where I was. And he puts Moses there and passes before him. And it said that when Moses came down from the mountain, like he was a glow stick. Like it lit him up. Moses was not the source of the light. He was merely reflecting. Church church history has thought about this a lot. And we sing the song uh, Dave Lazari did um, a few weeks ago that had the tag of like, when the night is long and the dark has come, you'll stand by me. When the moon is the only light we'll see. That's an incredible Christian ideal that God is the sun and the church has no light in itself. We merely, as the moon, reflect the light of Christ in the darkness of night. Moses has no light in himself. He's merely reflecting. And so God passes over him. And they had to veil him, actually, because the glory was passing. So here's the thing. God makes his goodness pass before him, his grace in his name. Or let me put it another way. He makes the glory of Jesus pass before him. Figuratively, where he just was. Church, we are like that. We are like those that are standing before the glory of Christ, merely like Peter, like just catching the heat wave. Now, this is a curious thing. Sometimes I don't get into this, but I know there's a couple of you that would find this fascinating. Just deep in a swim pool, follow me for just a second. White light is all of the colors, right? And darkness is the absence of light. 
So all of the colors are inside of like what we, what we describe as white. Now, this is not a trick question, so give it to me straight, kids. Kids, if you're paying attention. This is the one, and don't answer Jesus. I know that's usually the right answer. This is not that time. What color is an orange? Anybody? What? Go strong here. Orange. See, the adults were like, I don't know where he's going. <laughs> All right. Orange is the color of an orange. Or is it? Both scientists and philosophers will argue that color is not inherent. That if you put an orange in a dark room with zero light, is it still orange? Right, so this is a debate that they have that color is not inherent to the object. That it is necessarily connected to light. Now, there's all kinds of complicated issues that science has with light to begin with. Is it a particle? Is it a wave? It acts in some ways like a particle, some ways like a wave. Think about this. You need light to see things. You need this thing, light, and we have no idea what light is. That's like the most beautiful picture of Jesus to the scientific world right now. It's like, hey, you you know what you need to look through that microscope? Light. You know what you can't understand? Light. Light makes you capable of understanding everything. Or even this, to be orange, what you really need is for light to hit you. And when it hits you, it manifests in you colors that would not be there in the darkness. And so they debate about this kind of, is color inherent or is it given by light hitting it? So what, what's, what's the importance of that? What, well, that hits me because hell is described as utter darkness. And I don't think we always think about that. I think we think about the flame or the worms or which one of our cousins is going there. But like hell is described as utter darkness. Or there is no light in your life. There is no light to animate you. Or let me put it like this. The spiritual color of your soul is lost without Christ, the light of the world. That you need Him to become fully you. And that absence of Him, you'll maybe never become orange. Now, Jesus is this brilliant light. And then look what happens next. Verse 4. And there appeared to Him Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. We learn from the other gospel account that they were talking with Jesus about His departure in Jerusalem. Now, what is that? That's the cross. That's the resurrection. That's him ascending to the right hand of the Father. Moses and Elijah show up. And we'll spend more time with this next week. Moses and Elijah show up. And the primary thing they want to talk to Jesus about is the gospel. I love it. And of these two figures, they are a representation of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets... Preach Jesus in anticipation. But now they stand before the fulfillment of what they preached in part. Jesus is fully come. And they're just going to kick it and have a good time. Look what happens next. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it's good that we are here. 
I appreciate your, I appreciate your uh, co-signing here, Peter. Peter's on Yelp right now. He gives, he gives Jesus a five-star review. Uh, which would, I guess it's better than being like, yeah, Jesus, eh, you know? Like Peter shows up and he's like, Jesus, this is good for us. And it's like, thanks for that contribution. Let, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, some scholars will argue that this is six months out from Passover where Jesus will die on the cross, and thus it puts it around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, which I taught a sermon on some weeks ago. You can get it online. And th- that sermon, preparing for Feast of Tabernacles, and its implications for this is unbelievably um, powerful to me. And so you know that Peter here is truly not a Roman Catholic, but a Baptist. Because when God shows up, he doesn't know what to do except build something. It's like, God, I don't know what to do, but I'll, let me put something together here for you. All right? And so verse 6 is the most Peter line of all times. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Right? It's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Right? I'm just here. I'm here. It's like, and Peter's just chatting. Like, Peter's just rolling on. Do some of you ever nervous talk? Like, some of you, you get nervous, you shut down, there's no words coming out. But some of us, we're verbal processors. We're standing there, something happens, like, oh my God, I don't know, I don't know. And you just feel like you've got to say something to fill the space, right? And Peter's talk, talk, talking, right? He's got the chatter going. The beautiful thing is, look at the next verse. For he did not say, for he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. Okay, so one, Peter's talking. And God's like, like, cue the fog machine. Peter's on the mountain. It says in in Matthew's account, it's a bright cloud, which, which in the Old Testament, this language of overshadows happened multiple times. It is language of the Holy Spirit. The father's like, Holy Spirit, get in there, or Peter's just going to keep rattling. Right? And so the overshadow language is the same thing of the Holy Spirit overshadowing creation, and that as like a, a bird over it, like the dove, that's why we use that language. It's a picture language of the Holy Spirit overshadowing. Um, or the cloud had emphasis with both Moses and Elijah's ministries. Or uh, if you remember, I know this is Christmas time, so it's crazy important, that the angel said, Mary's like, how am I going to get pregnant? I've never known a man. It says the Holy Spirit will overshadow. This is the same imagery. How are we going to get Peter to shut up? The same miracle of creation and the incarnation with Mary. Cue the fog machine. We're going to pipe Peter down, right? And in the other Gospels, it actually has even better information about this. It says that as he was saying this, the cloud rolled in. Could you imagine Peter, like mid-sentence, just being like, where did everybody go? Right? In the cloud. The picture of the weightiness and the Holy Spirit coming in and just chilling him out. Maybe here's the thing. Peter, we appreciate you talking. and we, we, I hate to interrupt you, but I'm going to. Here's maybe a, a problem here, Peter, is you're trying to take... A, a meaningful hiking trip with Jesus and turn it into a church camp conference center 
establishment. And God has come to tabernacle amongst us, but this is not the point where, this is the sampling. It's not the time where God's going to tabernacle forever. That's coming at the second coming. He's got a cross to go to first, Peter. So maybe you can uh, pack up the tents. Maybe you can just um, turn down the nervous chatter. I know that some of you don't use this language, and so uh, you can just explain it to your kids later. Here's how I would describe what God is doing in the Holy Spirit and in the cloud with Peter. Shut up and listen. You're like, that's strong language. It's exactly strong language. God's telling Peter, you need to talk less. And you need to listen more. You need to shut up and listen. Some of us come to worship services thinking of what we're going to say or we're going to sing or we're going to do. And sometimes we need to come into the presence of God and shut up and listen. Because sometimes we don't know what to say and we're terrified and we're going to say a bunch of words so that we can hide behind them. Or we're going to create a bunch of activities of building tents instead of just experience God's glory. I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit has said this to me once or twice. He stopped me in my tracks with this before. Has he you? And what did he say? Verse 7, as the cloud overshadowed them, a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen. Biblical understanding of listening is listening and obeying are one in the same realities. If you're not obeying, you're not listening. And if you're truly listening, you're obeying. This is my beloved son. You know how rare it is that God audibly speaks in the Bible? It's really rare. In the New Testament, to my knowledge, there's really two main times. Both of them are to highlight and draw attention to Jesus. Peter's thinking about building stuff. God the Father is thinking about Jesus. Peter, we're back to this thing of you keep setting your mind on the things of man and not on things of the kingdom. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This has been the call and the command and the challenge for every generation. Are you going to listen to Jesus? Are you going to listen? Because unless the Holy Spirit shows up and overshadows us and silences us, we won't know what to do with Jesus. Unless the Father guides us to who He is, the Beloved Son, 
we will talk ourselves in a corner and we will miss out on who he is and what he has to say. And so I think this is the challenge. I think this is the invitation. I think this is what the whole transfiguration is meant to lead us to walk away with. Is are we going to listen? Uh, one last story and we'll be done. I, I was back home. Uh, we don't get to go home for many holidays because it's like 14 hours to get back home. And uh, we have Christmas services here, so we don't go home for Christmas or the other stuff. So pretty much Thanksgiving is our time to get home and do Oklahoma stuff. And so we went back and we were with some friends and they have some uh, small daughters. And so they put on the TV um, like some sort of like princess show. And I didn't grow up, this is just a change in culture. I grew up in an era where kids never got to choose what was on the TV. All right, I don't know what's flip-flop in culture, but for me, I still operate that way. If it's my TV, I don't care what my kids want to watch. It's like, get a job, get your own house, get a TV. You know what I mean? And so I don't like the idea that kids just come in. And so, but this isn't my house. It wasn't my situation. They come in and, you know, you want to babysit the kids. You just set them in front of that glowy screen thing. Okay, so they throw it up there. And it is a show about royalty and princess, princesses and princes and kings and all of this kind of stuff. And it's kind of embarrassing because, like, at one point I was there and I was like, oh, I'm here supporting my kids, watching this show. And then I got locked in. And then I looked around and there was, there was no kids with me. I'm just, I'm just kicking it watching Disney princesses or something. And, and then Whitney walked in. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, nothing, nothing. I don't, even want th- I don't, I don't know where that got there. I was reading, where's my book? Um, and so they were in there. And it's, it's fascinating because for us, we, we just don't have people that are like royalty in our lives anymore. Like we don't. Like I guess the, the, the most common thing is like celebrities mixed with, like, most powerful politicians we know. Um, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what we would do to kind of encapsulate if this person came in the room, how it would captivate us. But in old medieval times, one of the things that's really fascinating is that if you came into the throne room and you approach a monarch, you never show them your back. Do you know that? Like if you come in one way, you back out. Like that's how you leave. That when you come into the presence of a sovereign, you always face them. You always face them. And you never show them your back. It's disrespectful. And when they speak, you give full attention. Right? Because they speak with an authority and a decree that you don't speak with. Or that other people that are out in the street that you can ignore are not the same. And I found that fascinating that when people would come, they would always be face forward to a sovereign. Because God the Father here is telling us to pay attention to King Jesus. He's telling us to listen. And I'm afraid that some of us here are willing to show him our back. We're willing to walk away. 
But the invitation and the challenge and the danger and the glory and all of that is tied up on will you listen to Jesus or not? Are you face forward or are you showing him your back? And everybody is going to make a decision with Jesus and his words. Are you ashamed or in him and in his words are they life? Let me pray for you. With heads bowed, maybe eyes closed, and just between you and the Lord. I hope today you've caught just a glimpse of who Jesus is. Have you righteously, like a royal subject, submitted your lives to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Or today, are you listening to Him? Or is it stuff on the radio or on podcast? Is it stuff on TV, on your computer screen? Is that got your heart and affections? Or does the king have your heart and affections? Listen, I don't know you. Not like God knows you. So are you face forward today? Or is your back turned? Today, if you would say, I have never given... Jesus, my undivided, full attention, or surrendered my heart to Him. If that's you today, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to listen to Him, to call upon His name and be saved. To turn in faith and repentance and look full in His wonderful face. I'm going to pray for you that Whether God is calling you to shut up and listen or if God is calling you to repent and to turn back to Him or whatever He's calling you to do, that I want to pray for you that you would have the courage and the faith to do just that today. And so if you're humble enough, I just pray that you would receive today whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come now and bring heaven to earth in our hearts and in our minds. King Jesus, we turn to you looking full in your face, knowing that's where we find goodness and grace, mercy and salvation. God, you're all glorious and all powerful, and we worship you and we adore you. God, we praise you. Thank you for condescending to us, manifesting yourself to us, wrapping yourself in flesh that we might behold your glory in a way we can understand. God, thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and rising from the grave and interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. God, thank you for all of your goodness and grace towards us. God, help us to shut our mouths. Holy Spirit, come and overshadow us. Silence us that we can listen. Help us in Jesus' name. Everyone said. Amen. Would you stand with us and maybe respond in song?